You are listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA for short. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, we're going beyond Oregon, far beyond, to Karnak in northwest France and the site of thousands of Neolithic standing stones that predate Stonehenge. Built three to 5,000 years BC, this site is the largest group of man-made standing stones in the world, covering nearly 100 acres. The site's connected to the transition from farming to agriculture in this area and represents the associated uh, efforts to construct symbolic and funerary monuments for these, this ancient community. There's nearly 3,000 standing stones along 11 rows spanning four kilometers. That's nearly two and a half miles. This is a big site. Archaeologists first started investigating this ancient site in the 1870s, and unsurprisingly, it's been a popular research and tourist attraction for centuries. I'm joined now by musician Stephen O'Malley, who transformed the alignments of Karnak over a weekend in May through a series of concerts and musical interventions under the name U Origin. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, Chelsea. Great to be here. Yeah, so to start off, why don't you give us a, a brief overview of the event? Well, um, after the pandemic, the French government made a uh, arts fund called Mon Nouveau, which was their contribution to sort of stimulate the artistic community to create new projects and by opening up a bunch of financing and grants. And the interesting thing about that particular program although France is known for a lot of cultural support, actually, for art, music, and performance. That particular program, the Mon Nouveau, was a new proposition that was under the guidelines of a collaboration of the Ministry of Culture and the Monument National. And the Monument National is the uh, institution in France that takes care of all of the historical sites from Karnak, probably one of the oldest sites, to castles, to uh, battlefield sites, to many, many different types of historical sites. The beaches in Normandy are under that as well. And it was also a, a collaboration with the parallel institution called the Littore, uh, Monument Littore, which, was, uh, which takes care of the historical sites, which are land-based, like an old forest or uh, sand dunes in a certain area, and things that, had historical, that have historical... Uh, reference and value uh, to the French people. That's, that was, so the call for this particular fund was to um, encourage artists to develop uh, projects in collaboration with a specific site. And uh, a producer I work with, Severin Payen, um, alerted me to this and uh, thought I would be uh, interested because there's a lot of Neolithic, megalithic sites and um, some other prehistoric sites. So I'm a, I'm a musician who's worked a lot with ideas of these kinds of old places and temporality uh, in music and have also just personally had a fascination with prehistoric art, megalithic sites in France, the UK, and around Europe. And um, one of the things I've done since I moved to France 2007 has visited a lot of these places, whether they're cave art in the Dordogne region, several Paleolithic cave art sites, or the Standing Stones. I'm also O'Malley, and in Ireland there are hundreds of these sites too. So it was kind of a pipe dream, to be to be honest. Let's propose my band, Sun, 
a concert at a number of the sites. And to my surprise, actually, the the, um, uh, the proposal, the dossier was accepted <laughs> by their uh, panel, the, uh, uh, the oversight panel uh, committee, who was um, yeah judging how to um, hand out these um, these grants for these projects. It was a brand new uh, program, so it didn't have any precedent as far as how to actually produce them. And many artists proposed sites like Lascaux, <laughs> for example, and other Paleolithic sites, um, which were accepted in the program. But by the time they uh, got to the site for their site visit with the archaeologists, it was like, no, you're not going in there. It's protected. <laughs> yeah. It's fragile and stuff. So in my, my case, Bernard Blistein uh, was the head of the, is the head of the Mont Nouveau Committee, and he's um, he used to be the president of the Saint-Georges-Pompidou uh, Museum in Paris. And I'd actually worked there several times with some performance art and some other projects over the years. So we actually knew who each other were. And they were very excited about my band playing at this site and, and willing to like try and make it happen. Yeah, um, I think... I'm from the, I'm, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle. This is like... It kind of blew my mind you know, <laughs> that that would be acceptable, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. But that also goes back to sort of a yeah, young metal guy's uh, skepticism about many things. But one thing led to another, and I went out for a site visit um, out to Karnak. And it's it's in Brittany, in Breton, the western northwest part of France, which is... Um, as your listeners may know, sort of the Celtic area, I would say, in a nutshell. But it also has like a really uh, tumultuous history in the 20th century because it was one of the areas that was occupied by the Nazis. There's a lot of huge submarine bases there that the Nazis built that are unable to... They, they will become the megaliths, you know, 7,000 years from now. They'll, they'll still be there. And... The cities were bombed. Um, it's pretty ugly, the city, the, the rebuilding of a lot of those cities. But the nature and these sites and these villages still are um, beautiful stone house villages along the coast. And the culture is really, really strong for music. And I went out there for the first site visit. Uh, I went by train. It's about four hours train from Paris, where I live. And... Uh, uh, someone from the uh, Monument National was going to pick me and my partner up at the train station. So there's this guy waiting there, and he was wearing a magma shirt. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cute. They got the guy from the office who knows about music to come pick me up, you know, like the assistant or the, the younger guy or whatever. And uh, Magma is a band in France that's um, – they're kind of the uh, main – legendary frog uh, band from France. They're very cult and uh, have a really devoted following. And I'm a huge fan too. So I started talking to him about music, this guy. And uh, I didn't really catch his name because his accent was strong, but he, he started driving us around. Within about 30 minutes, I realized that this guy knew a lot about my music already. Like he knew about Sun he knew about specific albums of Sun. He knew about songs and lyrics of Sun, which uh, reference 
mysterious giant sites. Our singer for a long time was uh, Attila Chihar, and he would write about um, places like Baalbek in Lebanon and, and the, his fascination with these stones that are, it's, it's a bit complicated to understand how these sites were made um, at the time. The stones are 60 feet long and 20 feet high, for example. So yeah. this guy was like, oh, this is great. I really understand, you know, why you would want to do this. And then he started talking about other music I'd made. And I was like, a long time ago, including a band called Con 8 and Burning Witch, <laughs> like my really early music. I was like, you know what that is? It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. You found your and, perfect uh, collaborator, it sounds like. Yeah, but I was so naive, I didn't understand that this was the main archaeologist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Olivier Agage. So we were bonding, like, when you meet some... When you meet someone in music, you have similar uh, music that you you love. That's an easy way to make a friend, you know, or mm-hmm. you know have a connection and stuff. And I've really, yeah, enjoyed that part of of being a touring musician and going around the world. It, it makes a lot of bridges really quickly, you know. It probably also helped that he did know your music so well, so he kind of understood what was possible, like, on this very non-traditional yeah. landscape. So, like, Sun has been manipulating space and the environment, you know, and, and kind of making these sensory experiences for decades, you know, with loud, smoky, mm-hmm. you know, you feel the music as well as hear it. So I wonder um, if he could already kind of envision how you could translate, you know, the the alignments of Karnak into somewhere to, you know, not just as a musical amphitheater, but as, you know, a non-traditional co- concert space. So you probably already started mm-hmm. the conversation farther along than you would have with somebody who didn't know your music or didn't understand music. Absolutely. I, I went out there expecting to uh, meet a patriarchal French diplomat <laughs> yeah. type of person. And, but instead, I met someone who we had fast-forwarded, like, what, what could have potentially been months of discussion and negotiation, trying to uh, pass along comprehension of why those elements you just mentioned would be even relevant to try. And Olivier took a, a long time, took a couple of days showing Callie and I around Karnak, and also many other sites, many other tumulus in the region. There's, I, I think over 375 prehistoric sites in Breton, and there's many, many in that particular region of Morbihan. Yeah. And it was it was just as a out of curiosity and as a human being, it was super exciting just to visit. Just that site visit made the whole dossier process really worthwhile, you know. But one thing I learned on that site visit is, and maybe this is also naive, well, they're fragile. The sites are fragile and they're protected. Only a few people can go in at a time. And um, they have fences around them now because for centuries they were they were only used for, well, they were just in the landscape of the local people. So there's a lot of sheep farming. The, uh, a lot of the stones were presumably used as materials for houses or walls or the church and the town and stuff. And... What I discovered is that one of Olivier's main projects, since he became the chief administrator of that site and the entire, and, and by the way, he's also the chief administrator of the entire region of Breton's prehistoric sites, is what they call it, um, 
he had spent uh, about seven years, I wouldn't say rewilding, but really paying attention to getting the you know, plant life back uh, around the stones and on the site. So there's incredible flowers and, and brambles and bushes and stuff. And there's there's still pathways through, and you can uh, you know move around on uh, on top of the vegetation. But it was a real restorative project that he had been doing. So that brought up a lot of, yeah, yeah, questions about why would we build a stage here and have a thousand people like trampling all over this thing. And I basically came to the conclusion a few over the next few months of that's a bad idea, actually. Yeah. Like I'm going to abandon this pipe dream that like, which would be, uh, potentially like Sun's version of Live in Pompeii by Pink Floyd, potentially, <laughs> and learn more about the site and figure out something else to do. So uh, I didn't really know how to pivot that, but I knew that, oh, I could have smaller events that were based on acoustic music with minimal uh, infrastructure to bring in or production to bring in and do smaller events in more places over a period of time. And through those site visits, I also would get up at dawn to go to the sites and also be there at dusk and walk a lot, mm -hmm. walk through the sites a lot. And I did a few more weekends there uh, researching and just walking mm -hmm. and experiencing the way moving through the stones and at different times of day um, felt and what they opened up in my perception and my imagination and the questions, the mysteries of that uh, place. So I wanted to follow up on that idea of you like walking around and kind of experiencing the site because this is something that was the most interesting to me when I heard you were doing this and I'm sure that Olivier would, would feel the same that, you know, we don't totally know why or how these sites were created or what they were used for but I think that there's a lot um, a lot to be learned from, like, your perspective of how sound and, you know, you not only paid attention to how sound would move across this landscape, but how light moved across this landscape and what it would feel to be in this environment and, and have these kind of small dispersed kind of, I guess you called them musical interventions. So... I, you know, I wanted to kind of follow up on on how you kind of framed that as musical interventions, but also if you feel like the way that um, you kind of ended up creating these this event was kind of how this landscape was meant to be used. Like you said, it felt wrong to put a big stage there. Instead, um, you know, you could kind of take in this space that hasn't really changed a lot over thousands of years and kind of um, feel what intuitively seemed like the right way to use it as a participant or an instrument in this event. Absolutely. And one of the biggest mysteries I had was how will sound move around? I mean, there, there's the imagination of it's going to reflect and create incredible reverberance or it might disappear or it could create a phenomena in the air. And with my work as a composer, I've worked a lot with spatialization systems to cause those effects to happen. And a spatialization system is a multi-channel speaker system 
that creates an illusion of space, you can control computer software. So you could have in a black box theater, 20 speakers all around. And while something's happening in the stage, it could feel like the acoustic space expands into the shape and impression of being in a canyon or zoom down into something that feels more like you're walking in a forest that has a large bed of vegetation and debris on the ground. So I think I went in there not with expectations, but a lot of questions and a lot of risk, actually, you know, not knowing what would happen and not knowing what would happen until you were actually playing music there. And I didn't really have a, a lot of opportunity to bring the musicians and ensembles out beforehand simply because there's so many people. But one thing was very evident to me is the way that light moves across the landscape and the way a person moves through the landscape, either at those transitional times of dusk and dawn or through the day or even in the night and how the sense of visual perspective changes so much. But I discovered also, especially at dawn and to a lesser degree at dusk, is the sound environment of the animals and the insects change dramatically with that light. So what can I say? I'm not used to walking around on uh, archaeological sites at those <laughs> times. Maybe you have more insight on this, Chelsea. But just being in the place already opened my imagination and sort of sensitivity to things because I wanted to make the most of it. And I felt like that sensation, if I could bring that to small audiences, which I decided to call participants instead of audiences, like I decided to call it a sound intervention or performance instead of concert. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be more alive and undefined somehow. On one of the uh, visits, I was able to bring a couple of alpine horn players out there to do some tests with frequency stuff, not only in their technical performance of some of my compositional ideas, but to play and see what it was like. And those are the really, really long horns? It's kind of paradoxical because the alpine horn is a mainly it's like a Swiss national instrument almost. And yeah, I was thinking they're, Heidi. They're very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This group I, I wanted to work with, I've worked with before. It was a ensemble of alpine horn players. So the alp alp horn is I think it's about a four meter, twelve foot long horn made out of wood that goes down to the ground. Yeah, you think Heidi or Ricola, this kind of thing, and the leader of that group is a professional alpine horn player, which there's not many of those in the world, but he had worked with some really incredible composers that I really admire, like Haas, uh, Austrian composer who works with microtonal music. And I brought them out there as a sort of test drive because I couldn't bring all 10 of them at once. I wanted to write pieces for them that lasted about an hour that would start about, that they would start 30 minutes before the sun moved above or below the horizon and then end about 20 minutes to 30 minutes later after that happened. So you go through the full arc of the emergence of sunlight, the day, or into the night or vice versa. And what I found with those two players were the two, it was the professional and, uh, and the main amateur was actually the sound, it sits in the air in a particular way, and it doesn't reflect at all. And the stones don't reflect. And that was kind of mind-blowing because some of those stones are massive. I mean, they reflect a bit if you go right up to it and, like, 
aim the horn directly on the surface, but there's really no like delay sound or reverb sound. But with certain pitches and harmonics, they can be played at a very quite low level of amplitude, but they had so much presence in the air and you would be able to really feel the physical like harmonic interaction, which I work a lot with. If you can imagine two two players playing the same note, but one player is playing it slightly higher, like only like 2% higher, what happens is a kind of wavering sound between those two pitches. And what's actually happening is the sound is phasing through space as it um, interacts with itself. And it gets more and more complex with, with more sound sources. So you have a movement of the sound, uh, a movement of that phenomenon through the, through the space. With my music, I typically, well, I often work with very low, powerful frequencies. So when that movement happens, you feel it in your body, and it's very physical. But what was remarkable about those horns and that sound was it was physical, actually, even if the the pitches were in different registers than like a obvious like bass uh, powerful sound. So yeah. um, that and then uh, when we got to the performances, another piece I wrote was for a. Uh, uh, Native American flute player named Timothy Archambault. He's kind of, he's a master flute player, but he, he's also a noise artist. And but in his world, in his community, he has been given many, many songs from different communities, tribes, including his own Algonquin, and to preserve and hold on to give to the next player, the next generation and stuff. That's how the knowledge of uh, a lot of songs uh, um, Mm -hmm. is passed along and and retained. And he had the most amazing ears for this. And he was, he's also a a contemporary architect (laughs) working. He used to work with Frank Gehry works on these massive things, but he was, he was like shocked that the stones, were almost absorbing the sound the closer you got to them. So um, we, through through the performance, I I wrote a piece for him and another uh, Native American musician named Raven Shackon and me to work as a trio. It was called a walking piece, and we spent two hours walking through the site with about 40 people following. and stopping and naming stones, which was a metaphor I used for identifying a stone, working around it, playing. He would play flute. We had these other uh, different instruments, bells, bull roars, and several other smaller like bird call and animal call instruments that Raven had. And we would kind of personify the stones into... um, objects of focus for the music and for the audience. Oh, uh, excuse me, the participants. The participants. <laughs> yes, you caught yourself. You're listening to Underground yeah. History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we are exploring little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm, I'm speaking with musician Stephen O'Malley. So I want to I follow up on that idea of like walking through, because this site is really a liminal mm. space. You're between the, the land and the sea, mm. the present and the past, and so it sounds like you really kind of 
leaned into that idea. The the stones are absorbing this music, maybe like they've been doing for thousands of years. And you're really kind of helping to are are, are you are you trying to keep it kind of that ethereal between worlds? Or are you trying to pull people back into this the past? Or, you know, when you were thinking about naming the stones and immersing people in that experience. Um, you know, what were you viewing, you know, where were you placing yourself, I guess, in time on that? You said you've got a lot of temporality in your, your music. So what were you thinking about um, in terms of like creating this experience for these participants? Well, my, my view on temporality is more uh, focused on being in the present, actually. So going through a musical uh, intervention or concert the only thing that's happening is right at the present. Like things in the past don't really, they, they only have relevance in our memory and things in the future as well. So I was kind of approaching it that way. Of course, it's an ancient site. You know, some of the, some of the uh, pieces of the site, like the tomb of Saint-Michel, it predates the pyramids of Giza. And my, it's one of the oldest um, Neolithic sites in the world. Um, and, you know, you could think about that and the, the monumental, monumentalism of that temporality. But I, I, my approach was a bit experimental about presence and being and opening awareness in the place to, to kind of give a few more degrees of perception and experience through that. So, um, I learned, of course, I learned many things about different theories and hypotheses about what the shape of the site signified. Uh, I, this one quick one I want to mm-hmm. talk about here is those lines are often thought to be uh, related to the, the border between the sea and the coast and the inner land. And when those, uh, the majority of those sites were built in the Neolithic period, actually the, uh, coastline was much further out the sea was lower at that point and quite far out they found many stones actually underwater now but which were of course above they were on land in the period so thinking about that kind of flexibility of proximity with the sea um it's a real mental like leap to do that to think about why why would this be defined in that way and then why would it be defined in a way that had to be alive was one of the one of the more remarkable parts of the experience of the U origin project which i discussed a lot with olivia and maybe he can elaborate is the sites were alive when people were there with their open perception at dawn listening to the birds and and four alphorn players and six conch shell players performing an hour-long microtonal harmonic piece yeah. It embodied some aliveness in the place. And, of course, they're always alive because all, all of the animals, plants, and, and humans there, they're not, they're not stuck in the past, so to say, somehow. So I think that result of the experiment and just mm-hmm. contemplating these mysteries of it 
were very significant for a lot of people there, yeah, including and, myself, of course. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I'm so sorry I wasn't able to attend. And we'll have to kind of wrap up on that note. But I do want to say I did speak yeah. a little bit with Olivier in preparation for this. And he he had some comment that I think is perfect to kind of sum this up, is that the the stones are, are vibrating again, and they're not going to want to stop after this. So you, like, reinvigorated this landscape mm-hmm. in some ways, which I think is so cool and such a great inspiration for archaeologists to seek out these kind of collaborations and ideally um, people to fund them. So, um, But that wraps up this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. And Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today and speaking about your amazing work. I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Thank you for having me. It was a real honor to do this project, and I love talking about it. So thanks for having me on. I yeah. hope it turns some people on to these ideas. Oh, my God. My goodness. Me too. Um, you can find Underground History online at jeffexchange.org or wherever you get your podcasts.